battling the relentlessly negative doom and gloom news media. It's the Nick Stenger Show. Coming to you live from the Stenger Family Office Headquarters, it's your host, Nick Stenger. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Nick Stenger Show. My name is Nick Stenger. We are the Stenger Family Office for the past 42 long years. It has been our mission to deliver both clarity and confidence to help secure your financial future. Well, here we are. It's episode 111, episode 111, Boot in the Face. That's the title of the article and the episode this week. And that comes from the Orwell 1984 bestseller, where O'Brien says to Winston, if you want a picture of the future, imagine a boot stomping on a human face forever. That's what we're going to talk about this week. And why do I bring that up? Well, I believe what's happening slowly but surely in the United States, if we're not careful, I don't think we're there yet 100%, but if we're not careful, we can quickly go down this road, this 1984-esque road, where the government becomes so big, it becomes so authoritarian without us realizing it. Now, in other countries, they've done this through the back, the front door. They've been very overtly authoritarian, you know, and you can think about China, you can think about the USSR and some of these places, in the U.S., we've done it kind of quietly, thanks to the way the founders set us up. The founders set us up where there's these checks and balances. And so that has really kind of saved us in a lot of ways. It's made it so nobody in D.C. really has that much power to do a whole lot. Now, obviously, the president has some power. Obviously, Congress has some power. That's all fine and well. We vote for those people. The real issue and what I really think what's going on, and if you don't have eyes to see it, you'll miss it. And it could eventually affect your investment strategy is this quasi fourth branch of the government that nobody votes for. And that is the Federal Reserve. If you do not watch the Fed, like we wrote about last week, that you have to be very careful. You don't want to fight the Fed. So when rates are going up, you got to be very careful owning long term assets when rates are going down. You want to buy stuff that's going to have a little more growth in it, even though it might not make sense at the time. That's what dictates the short term moves in the market. We have not been through a period like what we have right now in a very, very, very long time. 2018 was about as close as you can get. The Fed was raising rates, but not nearly to the level that they're raising today. In 18, we were trying to raise a little bit. The market went down about 4 or 5% in anticipation. And then as soon as we had COVID hit, not too long after that, rates immediately went to zero. What isn't really the issue is rates going up or down. Rates going up or down is part of the problem, but it's not 100% of the problem. The real problem is why rates had to go up in the first place and why the Fed was so late to the game. It started with this idea of modern monetary theory, MMT, which says that you do not have to raise taxes to pay for your crazy spending programs. You do not have to, like in World War II, raise bonds. Remember the savings bonds, war bonds. They don't do any of that anymore. We haven't raised taxes. Even Obama didn't really raise taxes. Now, they were higher under him than they were under Trump, but he didn't raise them to pay for 
is his spending other than the Obamacare tax and some of the small things. But by and large, what's happened is we have simply just printed money. Now, why have we not seen inflation to the level that we've seen it today, like in 2018? Well, a lot of people got this wrong during COVID and they said, well, this is all due to the federal or I'm sorry, it's all due to supply chains. It's not due to the Federal Reserve's actions. If you started from that place and you kept that opinion, which I think a lot of people rightfully had that opinion for a long time, but if you didn't pivot, especially at the end of 2021, you completely missed what's really going on behind the scenes. And unfortunately, now during COVID, none of us really knew what to expect. And so I don't really blame people for what they thought of COVID because um, we were at a point in the early days, some of you might remember this, where people were literally taking their clothes off in the garage, putting in a, a, a plastic bag so that they didn't wear their clothes into the house. I mean, that, that's where we were starting in 2020. So you really can't blame people for that initial reaction. The problem is, is when you don't pivot, when you didn't realize that COVID was kind of going on the back end in 2021, and you stopped looking at this thing called M2 money supply, you could have made some really bad investment decisions. And I met with portfolio managers. I won't name any names. I met with people at very qualified, large, respectable institutions. I'm talking big time institutions. They're top portfolio managers. We had dinner together. And at dinner, I asked him, I said, where do you think the Fed's going to stop? Where do you think they're going to stop raising rates? And a lot of them, almost all, either said two and a half, three percent, one that I met with in particular. Now, he was a short duration, so he was a short term bond manager. He's been very successful, so don't get me wrong. But he said four. That was the highest estimate that one of these people came up with. And I'm talking brilliant, brilliant MBAs, some doctorates, very, very high end portfolio managers. Nobody expected the Fed to be at five and a quarter right now. And we're going to have a rate hike probably today here. It's May 3rd. So by the time you're listening to this, we'll, we'll know what they did exactly. We'll know what they said. The bigger issue is why in the world are we treating these monthly or every other month Federal Reserve meetings like the Super Bowl? I mean, it's 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 like a big spectacle that everybody has to pay attention to. It's this big media event. It's on the front page of all the major newspapers. The only reason we have to pay attention to this at all is because it truly is that quiet fourth branch of the government that nobody voted for, but happens to control a lot of our day to day lives in the long run. Everything that I've always said is going to be true. Companies will go up especially if they create value. And over the long run, companies that create the most value will win. That's it. That's the basics of value creation. That's the basics of capitalism. If you do the right thing for your customers and you, you help them over the long run, you will be successful. If you innovate and you do uh, you use technology to bring down your costs, then you'll be even more successful. So that formula for long-term wealth creation will last for forever as long as the U.S. is around. But in the short run, the Fed can really change the game for investors. That's what I would be watching right now is watch where the Fed's going to go. Now, the biggest thing that we're facing right now is M2 money supply, which went up 45% during COVID. Remember what that means. If you had $100,000 at the end of COVID, that $100,000 might have been worth technically $145,000. So, you saw a lot of people buying houses they really shouldn't have been buying. 
You saw people um, buying cars for ridiculous prices. You saw a lot of excess. My wife actually reminded me, we always go down to Naples, Florida to hang out with my parents during the uh, right after Christmas and going into the New Year season. And it was New Year's Eve. I believe it was 2019. So this was pre-COVID, right before COVID. And we're sitting there on the beach. It's New Year's Eve. And somebody had left a 400 or 500, I don't even know what it was, but like a $400 bottle of champagne on the beach. Like they just, they drank one sip of it and left it. And we looked at that and we were sitting next to this couple and they said, they, they leaned over, they go, it's pretty interesting. We're in this environment where people are leaving $400 bottles of champagne. And that's usually a sign that we are kind of at peak excess. We are at peak exuberance where people think nothing can go wrong. Well, sure enough, just a couple months later, it's March of 2020. And now the world is getting shut down. The market plummets about 35%, which it did come back. But the point is, is we were in that just incredible time of excess during pre-COVID and then after COVID, now we're kind of dealing with some of the ramifications of the ridiculous money printing. So we're on the back half of this, on the back half of money printing at 45%, that $100,000 in the bank is now not only just going back to being worth 100, but M2 money supply, which is falling, it's down like 5% from its all-time peak. M2 money supply that's falling now is making that $100,000 in the bank worth maybe closer to 70,000. That's the price that we pay for inflation. And and the saddest thing about inflation, we all know this of course, but the saddest part of inflation is it hits the middle class the worst and of course the low class, but the middle class gets hit the worst. The middle and upper class in this country bear the brunt of tax hikes. Don't ever forget that. So if you ever think, hey, we're going to hike taxes, remember, there's not enough rich people to go around. Even if you confiscated all their wealth, I'm not even saying taxed all their wealth, but just confiscated it. Okay, there's not even enough wealth in this country from the richest one percent or 10 percent or however you want to slice it and dice it to run the federal government for a year. The federal government is so stinking big today that it should be a warning sign to both sides of the political aisle. And that, that's been my argument. That's been my point. Amity Schles makes this point in her excellent book, which I totally recommend, The Great Society of New History. This is her book talking about the LBJ years and the Great Society. You remember the 50s and 60s coming off of the FDR, which I know FDR is a little controversial to um, talk about, but um, FDR rightfully so, had some things that he had to deal with with the Great Depression. However, FDR also made some big mistakes. LBJ made those mistakes much, much, much worse. And that's why I don't 100% blame the Carter years for the record inflation we had during Jimmy Carter and the stagflation, all the rest of it. I think he didn't help himself. He, he could have done some things differently. Obviously, he wasn't a great president and truly will probably go down as one of the worst presidents in U.S. history because of this. Maybe a little bit unfairly so, because he was dealing with the nuts policies of the 60s. That's that's really the truth. And so Jimmy Carter came into this world where all the damage had really been done. And if you read The Great Society New History, that book I mentioned, um, Amity takes the difference between guns and butter. That's That's kind of the historical comparison of what do we spend on defense versus what do we spend on social spending. And obviously, social spending now has just 
skyrocketed. And it, if you look at the numbers, like I did last last night, um, uh, spending on butter, so spending on social spending, is seven times more than defense spending. You can debate that all you want, and some of you are on the right, some of you are on the left, some of you might be moderates, and you want like you know you want a little bit of defense spending, a little bit of butter spending. However, if you are looking at the total picture, you should be really a little bit nervous. This should be a canary in the coal mine to Democrats and Republicans, both sides of the political aisle, because government spending today is now 27% of GDP. Government has never been a bigger part of our lives than it is right now. And if you went back to the 1930s, GDP, uh, government as a portion of GDP was in the sub 8% zone. It was less than 8%. So government has really just gone so overboard. It's gotten so big. And when you have these big rapid expansion of size and scope of the federal government, what happens is every area of political life gets politicized and, and not even just the politics arena, of course, which, um, you know, all of us try, try to stay away from as much as possible. But even the parts that used to not be political get politicized. So you see this in education now, you see this in, in religion with church, and then you see it in healthcare, you see it in the finance world, you're seeing it with the ESG movement, and now even groceries. I mean, like you, you talk about, hey, inflation's up at the grocery store. Even that is politically contentious. Some people, rightfully so, have blamed Twitter, which I think does have some of the blame. Some of the social media stuff has added gas to the fire. But you cannot deny the fact that the size of the federal government being in every part of our lives, being so big, has made life very politically contentious. That's just the reality. And and so big government with the big Fed, remember the Fed is bigger and, and badder than ever before, um, has worked basically hand in glove with big government. And then as a result of big, big business and a big Fed, You've gotten these big, big, big companies. And yes, we believe in capitalism. Of course, we believe in free markets. But some of the stuff going on today is not free markets. It's not truly capitalism. Some people have called it crony capitalism. Some people have called it other things. But the, the truth of the matter, and you see this with the bank bailouts, you see this with the bailouts that have happened in the past, that government has tried to kind of pick the winners and losers of the stock market, of Wall Street, this is not fantastic. This is not what you really want to see long term. You want to see government get out of the way of business, not pick winners and losers. And there has to be risk. If, if you're in the free market environment, so-called free market environment as a company, and you know that you're going to get a bailout anytime you step on a giant rake and do something bad or take risk that you shouldn't be taking, well, you're not really going to manage your risk correctly because you know there's always an insurance policy. That's what's happened. Big government, big Fed, big business have basically written laws that I believe protect monopolistic interests. And this is the stamping on the face that Orwell warned about. It stamps the face of the small business owner. Small businesses employ most of the people in this country. Most of them are one employee, two or three employees. And this is people trying to make a better life, a better life for themselves. Small business owners are trying to bring in better solutions. And as a consumer, even if you're not a business owner, you're not an entrepreneur, that's okay. Um, but as a consumer, you should want this because entrepreneurship innovation is what leads to better outcomes. 
every single time when you truly get government out of the way of free markets and out of out of the business of trying to pick winners and losers, you end up with lower prices, you end up with more options and better products. The opposite is true in all these places that we've tried communism and socialism. And so anybody that says, oh, you know, just look at Sweden or look at this place or that place. If you truly look at places that have tried communism, that have tried socialism, look at the CCP in China, look at the USSR, look at Cuba, all these places that have really tried for a long time to push socialist or communist agendas, they end up with the opposite. They end up with higher prices. They end up with scarcity. They end up with worse products for customers. And you saw a little taste of this during COVID. Now, I'm, I, again, I just want to preface this by saying COVID was a tough disease. We all know people that had a problem with COVID. Uh, we have friends that were lost to COVID. And, and I'm not saying anything about the disease, disease itself. The fact of the matter, though, is that the government response to COVID was, in my opinion, a huge overreaction. The fact that we shut down things, we tried to lock down the economy in a response to it, that was a mistake. But the even bigger mistake after that was after we reopened. Now, you had to do a little bit of this because we took people's livelihoods away. We took their businesses. We took their jobs. We said, you have to stay home. You can't go to work. When you do something like that, you have to compensate people. So you could kind of argue that that first spending package under President Trump made a little bit of sense, although I, I think it was a disaster. I think it was a bad idea in general to lock down and, and give people money to stay home. I think that was a, a, a mistake. But you could argue that that was necessary because the government came in and did what they did. What wasn't necessary was the second and third package that added almost $4.8 trillion now to the deficit. Remember, Trump added a lot of money to the deficit, and now Biden has added a ton of money to the deficit. These are the issues. And government has gotten bigger and bigger during COVID. Um, we still have now 4 million people, if you look at the stats, that have not come back into the workforce that should have reentered by now. There's almost 10 million unfilled jobs, which is down just a touch. But there are 10 million unfilled jobs available I think there's about 4 million people that need to come in. There's a lot of people, and we're financial planners, where I had very serious conversations during COVID. I said, hey, you should not be retiring. Now, if your financial plan was overly successful, you were in great shape, fine. I get it. You're 65 years old. You've done what you needed to do. The financial plan was successful. We said, go for it. Go ahead and, and retire. No problem. But for the people on the margin, which we had a couple people where we said, eh, I, I don't know, you're, you're spending a little bit too much. I think your, your estimates on returns are a little bit too aggressive. I think some of those people that retired at 55, 56, maybe a little bit too early in some cases, they're going to need to go back into the workforce. And, and that's what you're probably going to see between layoffs over the next couple of months, which you're already starting to see. Remember, we wrote the article, layoffs are coming. That's always the second factor. Remember, the first thing is the market goes down. The second thing is then layoffs come and then company profits go down. That's three. And then GDP goes down and that's a recession. So when all of those things happen, the layoffs are really going to be the catalyst that are going to stop the Fed from going any further. The Fed's got to see a little pain in the labor market. And don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying we want to have people get laid off. That's a horrible thing. It's an awful thing when people get laid off. But remember all the excess, again, going back to that, all the excess during COVID. And you had Facebook, for example, in 2018, they had 38,000 employees. At their all-time peak, they had 83,000 
which is incredible. It's more than double what they had. And the revenue did not go up anywhere close to double. You're having layoffs at Facebook to the tune of the first set was about 11,000. The second set was about 11,000. They're having to cut back because the demand just isn't where it, it was. You saw this, and we're going to talk about this in the second half of the show with our guest Grant Newland, who runs a venture capital fund. And don't go away. You're going to really like that interview. But there were, I think it was a CNBC article that, that highlighted a, a recruiter from one of these big tech companies who was making $190,000 a year. And they told her that you don't have to recruit anyone until your second year. Just get comfortable your first year and, and don't recruit anyone until your second year. That's excess. And you saw the, the videos on TikTok or whatever of these uh, engineers at these software companies where, you know, they, they spend half their morning at the gym and doing goat yoga. And then by the second half of the day, they're doing a little bit of work and they go home at four o'clock. That's all kind of coming to an end. So that's step one to try and get the Fed to stop rate hikes. Um, I think the second thing is you're going to have to have some people go back to work. We're going to have to, at some point here, fill that 9 million unfilled jobs. And if you can do that, which it will, it's just going to take us some time. If you can do that, now you get the Fed to cut rates, market stabilizes, and uh, you're going to have a little bit less boot stomping. We're going to, at some point, and I know this isn't a popular opinion, but at some point have to get a fiscally responsible politician into the Oval Office, whether it's a Democrat or a Republican, it doesn't really matter. Um, but, but you have to, have to, have to see somebody who's going to make the tough choices, who's going to cut government programs and try and get closer to a balanced budget. And you saw this with Ronald Reagan, obviously spent some money and, and blew out the deficit a little bit. But the tax cuts ultimately paid for it, and the market just took off under Reagan in the 80s. It, it was some of the best 10, 12 years we've ever had from the start of Reagan's administration to the end. I think you're going to see the same thing again after President Biden. If we can get somebody who's a little bit more fiscally responsible, even if the president's not, and you can maintain some gridlock in Washington and not a whole lot of anything happens, that would really be ideal. That's kind of what you saw with Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton had some great ideas that, you know, he was going to spend all this money in the early parts of his presidency. Turned out they weren't so great ideas, and he lost um, he lost Congress. And so that, which is very typical, by the way, even President Trump lost Congress there on his uh, after two years. So some gridlock in Washington would be a good check against this nonsense spending. If you look at the federal budget today, we right now we spend $1.64 trillion on the Department of Health and Human Services, $1.28 trillion on Social Security, which is basically going to go bankrupt the, uh, the, the trust fund, they say 2033 or 2032 now, something somewhere in there, $1.16 trillion on the Department of the Treasury, $727 billion on military defense, $640 billion on the Department of Education, and then you just keep going down the list, and it's just shocking what we spend money on. One of the big issues now is that when you had 0% interest rates or you had half percent interest rates during COVID, interest payments on that debt were not that bad. Today, you can get a 45 or 4.8 or 5% treasury. Servicing the debt has never cost more. Interest payments now are $928 billion per quarter. That's not for the year. That's per quarter. We spend $928 billion. That's more money than we spend on military. These are the issues 
that the Great Society book addresses. That's up 83% since 2018, and that is just not sustainable. You cannot, cannot, cannot continue to pay nearly a trillion dollars a year in interest to service the debt. So you ask yourself, and I think we're all kind of at this point now where, where if you've been awake, if you've been paying attention, if you've been getting all the weekly insights and following along with our, our projections on the Fed and our comments on the Fed, you start to ask the question, was this sort of planned out ahead of time? You're getting into some of the conspiracy theories, which I don't tend to agree with. Um, but but you, you want to ask the question, was this like pre-planned or at least who gets the blame? That's kind of the question I think most of us are at. There's two people to blame. First and foremost, it's the politician. It's it's the politicians. But the politicians alone really shouldn't surprise us because politicians have to do one thing, and that's to get reelected. Basically, their entire job is to, to, to run for office. So as soon as they get in, they're not really doing policy. They're immediately back into campaigning. They have a cabinet that runs the government. So part of the problem's there, but it's really not that shocking. The government's always done this. And, and, and imagine if you were a politician and your big stance, you come out and your big uh, campaign slogan is, we're going to cut Social Security. Well, you'd never get elected in a million years. Or if you came out and said, hey, we're going to cut welfare, we're going to cut this or cut that. It's very hard to get reelected when you're going to cut spending. You cannot sell bonds. Nobody would ever buy a bond to do like the Green New Deal or something ridiculous like that. So the real issue is the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve allowed the politicians to act on these terrible ideas. You have seen this all the way back to Hank Paulson. You've seen this with Ben Bernanke. You've seen this with Janet Yellen at the Fed. You've seen this now with Jerome Powell. They have not had the stones to stop the politicians in their tracks. You saw this with George Bush. On the right side of the political aisle, 80% increase in federal spending compared with President Bill Clinton. Same thing happened under Obama. President Obama added $5 trillion to the federal deficit, double what the initial economic projection said. And Trump was no different. A lot of people voted for Trump hoping that he would be an outsider and not be part of this uniparty, which I don't think he really was part of the uniparty, but his actions were the same. He added $8 trillion to the federal deficit. President Biden, a continuation of the boot stomp, has already spent in his first term $4.8 trillion in money that we simply do not have. That's the issue. The, the, the true culprit of all of this is the Federal Reserve. And, and that's the part I don't think is by accident. And you can call this conspiracy. You can say, Nick, oh, that's nuts. You know, that, you, know you got to get off a of Breitbart or whatever. But the, the reality here is the fact that the Fed has allowed the politicians to print money. They've provided these made-up dollars that do not exist to finance the expansion of the federal government. Who's always behind that? It's always the big banks because banks hold deposits. Banks hold deposits now risk-free and risk-free on those deposits from the federal government. They are getting 45 or 4.8%. That is the true issue. You go back in history, you look at the Rothschilds, you look at the Morgans, you look at all these banking families. They were on the both sides financing wars and all this nonsense and financing both sides of the war in a lot of cases. And and they have always been big proponents of this. That's the business model. The business model of banking is to get more deposits. In the short run, a lot of these regionals and a lot of these smaller banks are going to have some problems. I tend to agree with Jamie Dimon. I think there's a little bit more pain coming. So it's not all over yet. 
But look at the big banks. Look at J.P. Morgan. They were able to come in and buy First Republic for pennies on the dollar. And that is the true issue with the system that we have with the Fed. It, it's incentivized to print money. And eventually, it doesn't completely take you out. But if you don't slow it down a little bit, what happens is you take your grandkids, your great-grandkids, your great-great-grandkids, and you saddle them with debt because you borrowed money from them today to do stuff that you never should have done, and they will ultimately pay for it in the end. That's really the issue. So is it planned? I don't know. Is it this big conspiracy at the World Economic Forum? There's some things that scare me a little bit about them and some of the things they've come out and said they want to do, especially with tokenization and taking over a digital dollar and and uh, social credit scores. A lot of that is just really scary stuff. But the bottom line is, is we have to invest in light of this environment. We have to deal with the reality that government is getting bigger, that the uh, uh, that the money supply is where it's at. So if you're a portfolio manager, yes, we can, you know, we can complain about it and we can talk about it on podcasts, but we actually have to deal with this reality. We actually have to invest your capital in all sorts of environments. Number one, you do not, do not, do not buy long-term debt, maybe ever. Um, 20, 30-year bonds, I think you could be get totally blown out of the water. You have to be very, very careful with that stuff. There will probably come a time where that 60, 40, 60 stocks, 40% bonds, that comes back into favor. So that might be something I, I won't totally discount that out. Um, but for now, until we completely know where the Fed's going, if we can get 5% on, on one-year treasuries, why would we ever go out and try and get 5% maybe on a five-year treasury? That, that would make no sense. So you got to keep the bonds short-term, keep your duration low. That's number one. Number two, and this is my belief. Now, Grant, who's on the second half of this interview, you're going to hear him, has a little bit different opinion than me on this. But I believe the U.S. is still the best place. The U.S. is the last and best hope for entrepreneurs. That's why I want to stay in the U.S. long run. Um, maybe look at India in the next couple of years. India is getting kind of interesting as a location. I, I think it's a little early, but we're still doing our due diligence on India. That's number two. Number three, lastly, you got to be in dividend income producing stocks. Equities are the only place that can keep up with this inflation over the long run. Equities, companies, have the ability to beat the rising inflation, to beat the rising money supply, and at least keep pace with the falling value of the dollar. That's the true savior of your portfolio. You got to be in equities. Yes, they're volatile. Yes, they go up and down. Yes, they they can kind of spook us sometimes. And and we all have been through these corrections now where uh, we, you know, it might seem like the world is coming to an end. But if you can just stay the course, if you can just hold on to the stories of the entrepreneurs that I try to give you on the show every week and remember what you own, you'll be fine. You'll make it through. You're on a good conservative plan. You've got uh, enough cash if you're retired to get you through two to three years of living expenses that's good and then you have equities especially dividend equities that will give you a return during these wilderness years now i don't think we're going into a complete lost decade remember the lost decade was 2000 to 2010 where the s p produced basically no return for 10 years same thing kind of happened in the 70s uh, 1970 and 1980 basically no return in the stock market i don't think it'll be a full 10 years but we could be looking at another two or three. So just be conservative with the financial plan. Don't buy stuff you can't afford. Just watch the expenses a little bit right now. Stay on a conservative plan. 
get some income now, and I would not add risk at this point. I would stay conservative. Do not be going out and buy tech stocks yet. I think some of that stuff could struggle for a while. So we just want to own good U.S. blue chip stocks. We don't want to have long-term debt. We want to just stay the course, own equities, which have the ability to beat that inflation over time. Thank you for being with us on episode 111. Don't go away. We've got Grant Newland, our special guest, coming up after the break. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the 111th episode of the Nick Stenger Show. Today with us, we've got just an incredible entrepreneur, a guy who I've known for a very long time, um, I think over 10 years now. His name is Grant Newland. He is the founder. He is the owner of a venture capital firm called Newland VC. Grant, are you with us? Yes, I'm here, Nick. Pleasure to be well, here. Thank you for taking the time. Thanks for being on. And we were just kind of chatting before we went live here. You were just in Brazil and just got back to your home in Austin, Texas. That's right. Yeah, we just got back. I mean, before we get started, I definitely want to just congratulate you on the move with the family office and really excited to, to see all the great things uh, you're going to you're going to uh, turn out of there. And it's a really exciting time uh, for you as well. So, um but yeah, we got we got back from Brazil this uh, this past week. We're down there for a month, uh, seeing lots and lots of opportunity down there. Really cheap uh, prices. Really, what we see is like a, kind of the opposite scenario of what we have in the U.S. right now, where at least from our perspective and at early stage in, in the in the play in the arena we play in, seed, pre-seed, Series A deals, uh, you've got a situation where it's very undercapitalized. So you've got a country two-thirds the size of the United States. It receives 2% of the venture funding dollars that the United States receives. So whereas in the United States, we have a lot of companies that are getting funded, funded, funded. Maybe some of them should be, maybe some of them shouldn't be. In Brazil, you've got lots of companies that that, that really probably should get funded that, that there's, just, there's just not enough capital there. Um, so so that's, that's what we like about Brazil. Uh, when we think about democrati democratizing venture and venture success, um, it goes even to, to, to the stats with, with San Francisco, right? Where 15 years ago, 75% of all venture deals were done in the U.S. And most of those, over half, majority was done in the Bay. Now, less than a quarter of all U.S.-based VC-funded uh, deals are in the Bay. And less than 40% of all deals globally are done in the US. So, so we're really on this wave of what we call democratizing venture, uh, and that's into these second tier type of markets. You know, I always say where there are people, there will be companies that will emerge to solve problems that those uh, economies or ecosystems are facing. So why, um, how'd you figure out Latin America? How'd you f figure out Brazil specifically, right? Because um, most of the talk out there, right, is China, um, you know, maybe India a little bit. Um, why Brazil? We mentioned India. We, we believe India is actually right up there with it. Could be the most investable country right now, India. 
Uh, and so we've, we've done one deal in Pakistan, actually, and we have IMPAC, India-Pakistan, on our thesis. Uh, we don't spend a ton of time there, but, but we see a lot of opportunity there. Brazil, the nice thing about Brazil is that, well, it's a massive market, right? We talked about the size of it. And so whereas we've done a deal in Chile, for example, the country, the entire country is less population than the LA metro area. So in that sense, they have to leave their home country if they want to make a unicorn. And they're experiencing that now. A company we have down there called WearClouds, which is, they went into Mexico, didn't work out so well. Now they're going into Brazil, actually, of all places, which is a totally different beast. Uh, but, but that's kind of what they have to do at some point, oftentimes, to, to build a truly venture-backed company. So uh, we, we can do deals really anywhere of what we call across the Americas. So we're really playing into this whole reshoring thesis with, uh, with Mexico coming. Uh, and look, there are other markets we could invest in, but we've got a really, we're already casting a very wide net geographically. So that undercapitalization piece is key. Whereas, you know, there's some great tech coming out of Europe, but they've got plenty of capital. It's already lots of established VCs, old money, new money, it's, it's there. Uh, Brazil has the market size. They, they focus, they're, they're the world's second largest uh, ag agricultural exporter. We do a lot of ag and food tech here at Newland Ventures, and so it's just the perfect fit for us. So Grant, let's talk a little about your background. You went to U of I, um, graduated with an accounting degree. You got a master's of accounting. I know you went to Duke later on, um, not too long ago to get your MBA, which was, um, which I think we can talk a little bit about too, but uh, you started out in the financial services world at EY, right? Um, and that's actually where I got to know you a little bit. Um, and from there, you know, you kind of went into the investment banking world. So talk a little bit about the things that you've done, some of the companies you've been at. How did that get you to where you're at now with, with the VC? Yeah, well, I'll start by saying I am not really a tech guy, right? I'm in a CPA by trade. So the best, the best VCs, right? I always use Andreessen founder of Netscape, uh, they're former founders that have actually built companies, scaled them, and know what it takes. So we love to surround ourselves with subject matter experts and, and really tech forward folks, folks that have started companies before because that's something that I don't have. That's like the key to knowing how to vet these companies. That said, uh, having a CPA, working in fi uh, financial banking regulation, consulting at EY post the financial crisis of 0708, uh, working investment banking and insurance where we have a big thesis in insure tech so we can really play strongly with insurance, early stage insurance tech companies in Colombia or Brazil because we know enough insurance generally to be dangerous and we can also help those founders. So we wanna be able to provide value to anyone we, we invest in. We're not, we're not just writing a check and walking away. Uh, also spent some time at Kraft Heinz, which is run by 3G Capital, which is the largest private equity firm in Brazil. So I was preparing board decks for Warren Buffett and, and counting a lot of ketchup and mayo. Uh, and, and there got to learn the pain points of big food and how much, how much these big food companies spend on R&D and how little they really get for it. So that's why you see lots of these um, big food companies. They just go and buy, they'll go buy a brand. Well, Cliff Bar sold I think it was to Kellogg's for what, like three, three billion? That was a few months ago. So, so the brands need, 
and this is kind of a non-tech stack, this is more on consumer CPG, so we're mostly tech investors, but it's important because the whole food system, whether it be a brand or even the agriculture, the supply chain, and insurance where we play as well, these are areas that really, they need tech more than anybody, their margins are really low, and they're usually the last to adopt it. And so a lot of the tech we saw built in the Bay five or 10 years ago is really now just finding its way in applications into the settings we play. Uh, so, uh, you know, for us, we're not necessarily the doing deep, deep, deep AI tech or some kind of crazy neural network type of investors. We're, we, we like stable consumer-based end markets, stable industries, recession-resistant industries to the extent we can. And so still able to get double-digit venture returns, right? That's the goal here. Um, but m potentially with less volatility. Well. So what, by the way, food is interesting, right? Kraft Heinz is an interesting store. I think they have a little trouble getting their stock price to go back up, but um, food right now is just incredible, right? Um, you know, inflation, pricing power that they have. You look at some of these other consumer staples brands, you look at, you know, Procter & Gamble, for example, and, and some of these other massive organizations and Pepsi, for example, you know, just their, their stocks are almost up double the past five years. Um What's going on in the food world? Um, are you concerned at all with the fact that um, we have such a shrinking small farm population, that we have such centralization of control over the food system? What are your thoughts there? No, that's a great point. Look, fortunately for us in America, we have the world's best river system and most fertile, largest farmland. So we're not going to go hungry, if you will. But in a world where supply chains are at risk due to wars, due to, you know, this new kind of global world we're living in, uh, there are a lot of countries. You saw Sri Lanka, right? They had massive issues. Uh, countries in Africa, even even a country like China, who, who imports 85% of its, its energy and food, they could have some problems, uh, especially with this Ukraine war. So Brazil right now is feeding the world in the absence of Ukraine with the grains. Uh, there are a lot of effects that will have, are kind of downstream that will keep hitting this market in the years to come. So continued inflation, yes, uh, is in, in food is, is, is very possible. Uh, I think there's kind of a, to answer your question more directly, I think there's a bit of a war going on, in, 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 in not actual war, but in food, in terms of what I would call regenerative agriculture, which is really better farming practices, more efficiency, uh, cleaner, right, less chemicals, less Roundup fertilizers. Like, how can we make the, the food supply system we have more, more regenerative, right? Versus this kind of lab-growing meat stuff that is, uh, well, it's getting a lot of funding. It's very early to tell how that's going to pan out. Uh, we don't even really know the health effects of eating a lab growing steak uh, and we don't even at, at this point there's there's really not enough demand for it either right you saw the impossible burgers all and that's that's not even lab grown but so it's gonna be interesting to see what happens well the, uh, the new thing is they want us to eat insects right that's yeah you'll eat bugs and be happy uh, I hope we don't get there 
But Which I think is it's supposed to be terrible for your health. Everything I read says eating bugs is is awful. You know, I just eat, stick to meat and eggs. I have switched though from dairy milk to oat milk. I make my make my own oat milk now, so it's cheaper. I like it. Uh, to each their own. As as long as people have freedom of choice, I think the the market and demand should eventually settle that out. Well, and that's what Texas is all about, right? You were an Illinois guy. You went to U of I. Um, how long have you been in Austin now? Since uh, Q4 2020. Okay. Loving it still? Yeah, well, it's kind of a split time now because I'm in Chicago for three to four months a year for, for work. We've got office there, team there, portfolio companies there, investors there. And then we've got Austin here, and now we're really leaning into Brazil as well. So kind of splitting my time between those three at the moment. Grant, but, uh, it's um, a great place. A lot of similarities between Texas and Illinois, not on the politics side, but on the, you've got big cities, you've got lots of farmland, right? These, these are two states that could really sustain themselves completely if they needed to. Um, Grant, you kind of, and feel free to correct this if I'm wrong, but I would say one of your best investments you ever made that you told me about a long time ago was tesla and um you're obviously a big tesla fan still i think right um yeah not a shareholder anymore though i got out before kind of this latest crash so not actually by necessity i needed i needed a liquidation event so i got lucky with the timing so how'd you figure tesla out so early you were you were early on tesla right you were um 2016 somewhere in there Mm, 2012 2012, wow. Yep, I was visiting their showrooms and uh, writing blog posts, you know, that was over a decade ago, and everyone thought I was crazy. Uh, And we stuck with it, and, you know, I would never want to bet against Elon Musk. There's obviously a lot of competitors coming out now, but I say this, Tesla could really, Tesla could give away their entire car business and still be worth trillions of dollars in, in the long run because of the energy business, because of, uh, I mean, really they're, they're, they're taking on, they're monetizing now the insurance angle as well as the, what would traditionally be fuel, right? And they're monetizing the electricity usage. So you're getting insurance, they're doing soft, getting software monthly fees. And, and so all these different revenue streams that they have. So the hardware itself, I mean, I'm surprised we're here in 2023 and we still only have very limited options for other EVs. I think Elon would be, he says it all the time in his interviews, he talks about, well, if I'm just here to accelerate the uh, adoption of EV. So whether he sells the most number of car units in the year 2033 or that's somebody else, I don't think that's really what he's after. Really what he's doing though is is building a fully vertically integrated energy company. That's what it is. It's really an energy company. Uh, And and that's a lot of the solar city stuff. And there's a lot of solar panels going up here in Texas. A lot of them already out in California. But that's that's really what it is. A decentralized off-grid network of which in an era of, let's say, even uh, risk to electrical grids. We've had that issue down here in Texas with weather. Uh, There's that risk with foreign governments hacking. If you have your own grid system, the decentralized, if you will, if you have your own power source through through the sun, uh, then then you can mitigate some of that. 
I think the funniest part of the entire Tesla, at least the stock story, is Jim Cramer saying that it was a terrible investment, and then them, you know, interviewing Elon on the street that one day, and he's like, you know, Jim Cramer's sort of a contraindicator, so not really, you know, he he said Bear Stearns was fine. Um, he also happened to say that First Republic was fine. Um, I don't know if you saw that or wow, not. Wow. Yeah. So he's two for two. Um, and he's 0 for 1 on Tesla. So that was, I, I think, the most comical part. Um, but Elon's interesting, right? He's kind of pivoted, and I think the left side of the political aisle kind of claimed him as their own for a long time. He's the guy who's going to save the planet, ESG, all the rest of it. And he's sort of pivoted, right? And he can kind of do whatever he wants. He has enough money. Um, he buys Twitter. And now the right thinks of him as their guy, right? Um, even though he's probably not on the left or the right, but he is definitely pro-human. He's definitely pro-freedom, pro-democracy. He moved his business from California to Austin. Yeah, it's it's pretty wild how he's really waded into the political scene lately. Uh, it is quite comical, the way you describe it. Uh, at the same time, it is nice to have the guy who's building all this AI and stuff that a lot of governments, I mean, they're going to be way, way behind the curve. Like on right, they can't even figure out cryptocurrency regulation, let alone, you know, robotics and AI regulation, right? So they'll have already taken over by the time they even have a vote on the floor of the, the House or the Senate. So I think what Elon is saying is, look, we've got to put guardrails around this. There was this moratorium that a bunch of, I think Wozniak signed it, a bunch of people, hundreds of tech folks signed this, saying, hey, we need a moratorium on this. We've got to create rules of the road. We've got to have, and who knows what that looks like, but uh, unwielded, and I don't know how far away we are, right? Like, who knows if it's 10 years? Is it 100 years? You know, we don't see robots yet. Like, you know, I'm thinking of the movie I, Robot, right? If you ever seen with Will Smith. Uh, where they're like, stay in your home, humans. It's for your safety. And then they, like, take over, right? Um, we're not there yet, but it sounds like we, we could get there, something something like that in our lifetimes. And we've got to have we've got to have some, some rules around that. Well, you know what's crazy is, like, sometimes you watch these videos nowadays, and if, you're, if you've ever trolled around on Twitter like I do sometimes, um, which I probably shouldn't, uh, it's kind of a black hole, but... Uh, a lot of fun, very entertaining, and but some of these videos now are so easily faked. I mean, they literally have deep fakes. They can they I I heard a uh, I think they they have a podcast now where it's Joe Rogan interviewing fake guests, but it's not really Joe Rogan. It's fake Joe Rogan interviewing like like they had like one with Joe Rogan and Donald Trump, and they're both AI generated voices, AI generated conversations, and you know this is like pretty good stuff like it's pretty accurate you know and you're like this is a little scary you know totally totally and um i think now this next thing is and i know you guys aren't um you're more on the like with tech on the food tech side of things but um where do you think this ai stuff goes where do you think like what what is really the true benefit of ai and that's all the entrepreneurs i talk to all the business leaders i talk to they say this is going to transform corporate america what are some of those things that you're looking at? Do you do you see some of this in the companies you deal with? Are they talking about it? Yeah, well, I'm definitely not an AI expert. What I can say is that 
you know, these things, ha these, these innovations happen sometimes in fits and spurts. And, you know, ChatGPT, Chat while interesting, uh, has a lot of, it's very sophomore at best and has a lot of holes. And uh, so, you know, when we get pitched companies all the time that are like, AI or this dot AI, AI, and they just start, now they just start throwing this word out as a buzzword. And it's like, okay, well, what exactly are you doing? And, it, and what is it? Is it machine learning or is it artificial intelligence? And what specifically can this engine, if you will, do? And, and, how, and how does it work? Other than I think everyone wants to just throw out this buzzword of AI. And a lot of people, including myself even, don't even know what it means. And it's like, okay, well, ChatGPT, like, helpful, but, uh, you know, I don't think that's going to take anyone's jobs away anytime soon. We'll see. Depends on what type of job, right? Like, I was an accountant. I think there's a lot of bookkeeping jobs, kind of these, like, lower white-collar, lower-to-middle white-collar jobs that, you know, could go. Somebody I was listening to the other day said 15 years, 40% of jobs will be gone. So the, the biggest one I think that's at risk are really truck drivers. And I, I, I believe we'll be in a world soon where uh, our, our children's generation, so I don't know if that whatever generation is coming up next, but we'll never, we'll never probably never touch a, a, a physical paper and we'll probably never drive a car and, and it'll be actually illegal for humans to drive cars, as, as Elon says, because well, they're connected cars via IoT and, and self-driving once it hits scale, which we're still away from, right? I think per penetration for EVs now is like 6%, and of those, how many are connected? Not that many, but once we get there, it's going to, I mean, there are 2 million truck drivers on the, uh, on the road right now in the U.S. And those mostly older men, you can't retrain them to code or do something in tech. So it kind of goes, ironically, to Andrew Yang's point. Like, there's going to have to be some sort of, like I'm very you know capitalistic, but you're, you're, we're going to have to have some sort of UBI, universal basic income, for all these people that 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 are going to lose their jobs and have nothing else to do, or there'll be riots in the streets. Um, so, again, is it, is it five years? Is it ten? Like still today, as we talk here today, we're not seeing tons of it yet. But like, how quickly is it coming? Do you think the government kind of stops? Some of that, do, do you think like there's a pro-union push or um, some sort of centralized like, hey, um, slow it down. We're going to still have real truck drivers. Do you see any legislation like that coming out or is it just too powerful of a force for anybody to do anything about? That's a good question. Um, there might be some of that, but I don't know how long that'll hold up, right? So... Yeah, the well, the tech world is fascinating, right? Because we we pretty much went through a snippet of the tech boom and bust um, last year, the year before it, and you had places like Amazon. We had a a client who worked at Amazon who was telling me, you know, like, hey, we're we're set to do a million packages here. We we have capacity for a million a day, and we're doing maybe two hundred, two fifty. And so I think there was just like a ton of 
people out there in the tech world who thought, hey, demand is going to be durable. It's not going anywhere. Um, everybody had this free money basically sitting in their bank account, getting, you know, you know, basically lending at zero interest rates. Um, my wife and I refinanced our mortgage at two and a half percent. I mean, that's free money. Right. And now all that stuff is kind of dried up. And I think there's a lot of tech CEOs out there who have never managed through higher rates, you know, and like the capital allocation decision at a five or six percent treasury is just totally different than at a half percent. Look at SVB. Right. Look at look at some of these companies and um, you're in the venture world. Right. So what's happened in your world? What are you seeing? What are, are there some genuine concerns about where rates are right now? Well, yeah, I'll say two things. For us, if we're investing in a pre-seed company that maybe doesn't even have revenue, some of the companies we invest in have millions of revenue already. Uh, but if it's a pre-seed company in Brazil and insurance tech, rates in the U.S., really, they're, 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 they're not really affected. So we're somewhat insulated from rates. But again, there's a lot of, some of that just takes like more time to hit from the, the macro level down to startup. So you are seeing lots of VCs pulling back their investment. You're seeing valuations come down, like all this. In particular to rates though that you mentioned, I believe we're in a sustained period of high interest rates because until we get this reshoring of manufacturing away from China to Mexico, somewhat to India, to, to, to other places, that takes time. So it takes like five to 10 years. You, they're building these Samsung, all these Intel, they're building these massive $10 billion plus fab plants in Ohio and Arizona and Texas. That takes a long time to do. And so part of it too, it's like, well, what's our priority? Is our priority to hire another 100,000 Facebook engineers to, to monitor everyone's accounts and to shut down the ones they don't want? Or is our priority to build things that we need like so we can drive cars or buy TVs? Because if we lose Taiwan, you won't be able to get a TV, a cell phone, nothing. And that takes a long time to, to kind of reshore. And so until that process is completed, um, could take a decade, who knows? I, I, I think somewhat of higher rates are here to stay. And so to your point, you know, how do these tech companies manage through that? And you're seeing all the layoffs in tech land, it's insane. Um, yeah, it turns out like Facebook didn't need 83,000 employees. Like I, I read a, um, I read a post where they were, I think they interviewed a recruiter. Like I can't remember what company it was Facebook or Google or one of the big ones. Recruiter was making close to 200,000 a year. And they told her, they're like, Hey, like don't, you don't have to recruit anybody your first year. Like just get your bearings, um, check out the company, see how things work. And then, you know, by year two, you can do your job. And they literally said that, you know, they interviewed all these recruiters. They're like, we were just told to hoard talent. Like, we didn't need all these people. We didn't need to hire all these people. But there's just such a rush of easy money. Um, their stocks all doubled during COVID. And now it's like, hey, we don't necessarily need to double our workforce because now our revenue is only up maybe 20% instead of 100%. Totally. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Is um, so, Grant. Tell people a little bit about Newland VC. Um, and obviously, you've got some portfolio companies. What are you most excited about right now? What are What are some of the investments that you uh, in the portfolio that you you're really uh, really thinking are going to take off the next couple of years? 
Well, we've, you know, we, we've got this whole LATAM thesis. You know, we're doing ha over half of our deals still in the United States. But anything around, anything around food, whether it be even, you know, putting IoT or even, you know, drones and dealing with things like that or satellites on a, on a farm setting, like we see some pretty cool stuff. At the end of the day, some of the stuff we invest in is what I call in the unsexy industries. But in Brazil, for instance, food is actually very sexy. So uh, relative to like maybe a B2B SaaS or some of this AI stuff we talk about. So there's a, there's a, lot, there's a lot out there. We've got now 17 companies uh, of, that we've pulled from outside capital between our fund and our angel network. And I've got about 30 plus total uh, investments, personally. Uh, we've got one, I'll, I'll give you a pretty cool one actually that's a little bit deeper tech. So it's a, I don't know if you remember those, those kind of, we call them pucks. We'd use them in consulting we, we, 10 years ago. And basically they're those little hot spots before your phone had a, a tethering ability, you'd kind of have this puck and you'd sit it up like somewhere high in the office where it had some view of the window and everyone would like put their phones and their laptops tethered into this puck that would then send the, the cellular signal to, to receive to receive data. Uh, well, this is a puck as well that connects to satellites and the low earth orbit satellites that are being launched. There's Starlink, there's, there's, there's several, several different, there's, there's the Iridium network. And so essentially you can get full cell text weather capability not five, not like 5G streaming yet by any means, but you can get that anywhere in the world, like in the middle of the ocean, at the top of Patagonia, like anywhere. So it's great for backpackers, outdoors, the military is, is testing this product right now. Uh, and so this one's cool. They just raised, uh, somewhere labs, they raised a $14 million Series A about six months ago. So it's like a seven and a half X markup from our initial investment. So they're still at Series A, so st still early. Uh, but in the future, I don't think we're going to need cell phone towers and have to build those. And that that infrastructure is kind of already it is there, right? But the next generations, I think, will will be just our phones will be tethered and plugged into into satellite networks. The Leos, is, the lower. Is orbits. that like Star? Is that the same as Starlink? Like what Elon's yeah. doing? They plug into that. Yeah, they get invited okay. to his Neilan's dinners and stuff because they want, you know, or they get, yeah. So it's just a, basically our phones will all eventually, whether you have this puck or not, but eventually I believe our phones will all be tethered into the satellite network. So do you think um, that's kind of the future for cell phone service? Is that why some of these telecoms have really not seen their stock do much for the past 10 years, 15 years? Yeah, I, I think it, I think it really is, Nick. It, it's uh, we'll see. Again, I'm not a telecom expert, but I see the vision. I see it makes sense. I see the infrastructure level cost to rebuild new towers every generation on top of mountains in the middle of West Virginia. It's like it's very expensive. And these Leos, these these satellites are already kind of they're shooting them up and they're getting cheaper and cheaper by the day, and the reliability is gonna is gonna be. Better. So you could be in a basement bunker in the middle of the ocean, like I said, anywhere. And I mean, even in Austin, I get service outages all the time. It's, the infrastructure is not that great down here. Um, 
so this is just a it's a puck it's a hardware puck that that these two engineers are i mean they're what they have already is kind of 10x better than whatever garmin's pumped out right so there again you have these older stadger companies that build a product it like moves the needle people like it but then they kind of stop innovating right a lot of when, once you get to a certain size and smart you've got dominance in any market your, your natural inertia over time is to start to sit on your laurels a little bit and maybe you don't have to innovate as much so so therefore it's it's great to see new companies come up and and, and challenge and go to toe and go toe to toe and sometimes you know beat out these these incumbents and you know there's a lot of different exit paths maybe they end up getting purchased by 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 one of these larger companies great that, that can work too um, so what what happens to all the legacy towers right and then what happens um you know like to some of the legacy infrastructure do they literally just let it kind of crumble do they stop investing in it um what what ultimately really happens do you see like um like for example do you see somebody can, can they even compete with what elon's doing can they can anybody else really launch a tiny rocket into space to get a um you know, to get the, the Starlink thing set up, or is that truly a massive competitive advantage? No, I think they can. So I, I'm, not in, I'm not sitting in the boardrooms at AT&T and Verizon, so I don't know what their long-term capital planning is for this. I'm sh I, they've got to be talking about it. Uh, so, yeah, do the, do the towers just kind of, you know, slowly become obsolete? And, but, but, like, I think even Zuckerberg, Facebook, I mean, even, like, you've got... Uh, uh, Bezos and uh, so in other governments as well, right? Like EU, India, Japan, China, like they're they're all launching their own Leos too. So uh, I don't know if it's kind of like Tesla. It's like okay, well Elon's doing it, maybe the first, best, fastest, but others will join in on the party. Grant, what do you? Um where do you kind of see the global economy going here? Um, obviously, there's been plenty of people betting against the U.S. for a very long time. Um, we have been steadfast in our belief that the, the U.S. is one of the best places to be. Um, obviously, all the entrepreneurs agree with us because they're all here, right? Like, like uh, you look at China, right? Um, they're born in China. They leave. They innovate here. And then they go back to China when they're older, right? Um, investment is all coming back here. I think, and I know this is probably not a popular opinion, but as much as people might not have liked Trump's personality, for example, I think one of the best things he did, and maybe the, the real legacy of what he did for our country is the trade war with China, right? Um, getting offshoring back here, getting people to reinvest back in the U.S., and you're seeing this where Taiwan is you know, kind of like booming other than this looming war, um, South Korea booming, all these surrounding areas, India, like you said, um, I think I agree, kind of set to have a boom as well. A lot of that is thanks to companies finally waking up to the reality that you cannot really um, have a sustainable business model in a communist country. Completely agree. I mean, the long-term prospects of the United States will always be good because of our geography and because of our demographics and because of the entrepreneurial spirit that we have here. It's, it's unrivaled, unmatched. I don't, I don't see anybody really ever 
you know, beating us, if you will, in that sense. Um, that said, we can't look at the United States as the only game in town. Um, we were talking a bit about uh, a bit before the show. You know, when, when the U.S. dominated 80% of the global capital markets, everyone had to be here. You had to be if you want to even have any shot. Uh, well, now the Saudis, the Indians, you know, the BRIC nations, which India is one of those, they're trading in their local currencies. They don't need the dollar anymore. So, so while we're going to have continued technological advances that surpass other nations, uh, the, the question then becomes to how do, how do we export that? And then is there leakage that happens with China stealing and those things? But for a separate conversation, point being, King Dollar is dead, gone, and never coming back. Uh, cryptocurrencies, as well as uh, these other countries now settling their oil trades and all those types of things, uh, the U United States had over way after World War II and with Bretton Woods and it, we had too much concentrated power for only having 3% of the world's population. So if we take it down from 80 to even 50 or maybe even closer to like 25 where we're still like a massive multiple on how many people we have for how much influence we have in the globe economically, we really need to take a broader look at market level risk. And so the United States has performed very well for a very long time, but with 30 trillion in debt and some other uh, geopolitical issues looming, which we don't need to get into right now, I, I can make very many arguments that says Brazil is a safer place to put my money today than in the United States or another country, maybe in India or somewhere else, maybe even in Canada, for instance. Uh, so. We still are investing in the U.S. I am a patriot. I love this country. It is going to be fine. It's going to be amazing in the long term. But if you take the view that you can, if you have like, I know you know some of your clients are, they have a lot of money, right? If you have if you have assets at any size, like you 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 have to be thinking about it in terms of a global market now. The market is now the, the world, not just the U.S. So. Yes, there's a lot to invest in here. So, uh, but again, whatever ha you're exposed completely to whatever happens here. And if something in the short or medium term didn't go so well, and you have all of your assets in one market and it's just the US, then you're exposed to that market level risk that doesn't exist in other markets. So I another great example I use is, is you know, I used to always say, you know, never I said this as a joke because like you would never want to put 100% of your assets into a Swiss bank account, right? And the joke was because, well, it's so safe, but you're not going to get any return. But it's like the, it's like a vault, right? There, there's like banks in the middle of the Alps that will never get touched. And then what happened? Credit Suisse went under. It's like, whoa, if Credit Suisse can go under, then that tells you everything you need to know because that makes it that, that opens the door to any possibility you can imagine here. Call it a black swan. Call it a slow, a slow drip. Uh, who knows exactly? Point is, you know, still keeping a lot of my assets here, but we need to think about it more broadly than that, than just U.S. 
dominated uh, asset classes. So you bring up Credit Suisse, which brings up banking in general. Um, you know, probably the Fed's fault, right? And I think they fully understand that now. I think they get that. I, that might not even be a bug to them as much as it is a feature, right? And, like, you can go back through history and you can look at the Rockefellers and the Rothschilds and all the famous banking dynasties, and they basically created the Fed in the first place, right? And Chase is kind of an offshoot of um, these big families' banking dynasties, their legacies. And over time, what's happened is the number of publicly traded banks, we all know this, is down like dramatically, right? Like, like it kind of started in 1913. Fed get, gets created into existence. They print money into oblivion. Um, typically, you know, like the Fed comes out, they're like, we need a two to three percent inflation target. Well, all that kind of means is we're going to print two to three percent more dollars every year. Right. Um, so over time, you've seen purchasing power plummet. I, this is what we talk to clients about all the time is it's like, hey, you've got to be in equities because how else are you going to beat the declining purchasing power of the dollar? Yeah, well, since you asked directly, I mean. The, the vision I see, honestly speaking, uh, is some sort of version of, look, the United States, if we do get into wars and things like that, we're, we're, we're still very strong. So it's, we're, we're unlikely to like get invaded. We're not going to get invaded by somebody like, anytime soon. But like the British, right? They lost their, their empire, right? And so they got stretched too thin with the, the colonies and all that. For us, we're not colonizers in that same way, but our financial system is what's allowed us um, and, and really dominating that and saying, you gotta trade in dollars, you gotta, you, that, that system will, will have some sort of a trouble period. And so with the combination of digital, I don't wanna say cryptocurrencies, but it's like blockchain based, really will be a government-backed, U.S.-denominated, USD Bitcoin, call it, backed by the full faith and credit of the government. And do you really need, I, I think it leads to more centralization. The, the irony of crypto was to decentralize it, but it ends up being that it becomes the most centralized thing ever because now the feds can literally take money out of your account digitally if they, for whatever reason, uh, the good thing, the good, there's good aspects to that too, right? Like think about drug trade. Drug trade can be done now because there's cash. Well, if cash is not no longer accepted as, as currency and it's all gotta be digital and the government's got a view on every ledger transaction that goes on, then it should, in theory, stop illegal drug tra trades and things like that. So there's a lot of good aspects. Again, we need to put good rules of the road and, and regulations around what the government can and can't take from folks and like what those rules are that we all agree as society is our values. But do you need all these community banks and all these things? You've just got the US government backed post whatever financial crisis that kind of comes in, it, in its wake. It's like, I think it's a very centralized digital currency system. Uh, what do they call it? CBDC, Centralized Digital Banking Currency, right? The G7's already working on this. Rishi, Rishi Sunak at, uh, you, UK is, is, is preaching this all the time. So it's already, you know, call it conspiracy theories, whatever, but it's already in the works. And so uh, that's, that's what I think ends up happening. But doesn't uh, that, 
it, shouldn't that scare us, right? And like, shouldn't if you're Republican, if you're Democrat, if you're left or right? And I always say this: it's like we got to get past these small political differences because at the end of the day, like like this week's article is boot in the face, which comes from the 1984 Orwellian novel about how centralized power, authoritarian government, the bigger and bigger government gets, the smaller and smaller, and the more the individual gets stamped in the face. Doesn't that concern you? I mean, does it, does it, you know, like, like, do you get a little bit nervous when you watch Klaus Schwab come out in one of those, um, you know, Star Wars suits or whatever, and talking about you're going to own nothing and be happy? Yeah, but I also have faith. I think there's a lot of amazing things that this can do for us. It can connect us in ways we've never been connected. I mean, for me to even move money to Brazil, like now, it's like, it's an arm and a leg. And really it should be as easy as me just moving from like my internal accounts or like a Venmo, right? So, and like I talked about, you know, black markets, drug trades, there's a lot of things that this tech, that these technologies are gonna help us with. Um, it comes down to two, two things. One, again, as a society, we all need to be participating, both sides, everyone needs to be participating in the debate and the, and the structure around how we govern and have the governance around this, this new this new setup so that it is fair and everyone feels included and that people aren't getting taken advantage of uh, or you know social social credit scores is one that's that's really you know uh, an interesting one that is gonna I think upset a lot of people uh, so so that's one that's definitely concerned um, my biggest concern is I don't want US paper. I, I don't want to own bonds right now in the U.S. for the next ever till this reset happens because in my mind, it's returnless risk. Because of this phenomenon of, of we, what we've talked about, you're getting, like, and you, you mentioned it too, that's why you're you know, saying, hey, you got to go into equities, right? Because, because you're getting, like, not much return and yet the default, call it black swan if you will, but, I mean, we've seen defaults happen. They happened in 07, 08 even at the state and local level. That is that was just the tip of the iceberg. And so I just don't wanna hold US denominated paper, whether that's even cash, frankly, for in the, in, too much, right? You gotta have some cash, right? As you know, you're in this business of, um, you know, much, much more than me in terms of allocating, you know, assets and, and diversification, but uh, I just don't wanna hold US government paper debt. Don't want it. Returnless risk is, is the word. And there's so much risk to it that people don't see right now. Uh, Meredith Whitney was one who called it, oh, she was on CNBC years ago. And got, she got hammered for it, but she's, she's, she'll, be, she'll be proven right. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's what I would just, there's a lot of asset classes that you can, as you know, right? There's all types of equities, foreign domestic, there's, there's, all, types of, there's all types of assets you can get in. There's, there's dozens of asset classes. Why would you put, why would anyone put 40, 50, 60% of all their assets into one asset class that gives you no return with lots of potential risk? We could have that debate though, whether it's risky, but it's still low return and it's in one market and you're concentrating half your portfolio into that asset class. That just, that wouldn't make sense in any situation for me in general, let alone the risks we're talking about here. Well, sure. So. Right. And, and you've seen the, the death of the 60-40 portfolio. You know, it worked out great in the early 2000s. Um, 
actually coming off of the 80s, we started a 19, 20% treasury rate. That's when our, our, our group got started. And you're on a bond bull market, right? Rates went from 19 to f- 6, right? Um, actually down to zero in 2020, next to zero. And now rates are climbing. I tend to be in the camp that we could get to the 6% zone. I, I don't think we're completely out of the woods on inflation um, quite yet. You know, but the one thing I would differ with you on is I think the um, I think the uh, if the U.S. goes down, I think if the U.S. really has significant trouble, we are such an interconnected world now. I think not necessarily Brazil, but I, I think like China really could struggle. Right. And, and they own a lot of our debt. So it's like, you know, who who owes who here? You know, is it like does China owe us? Do we owe China? Um, because we're kind of all interconnected. Um, that's where I think the India story is interesting. T- talk a little bit about India, Grant. What's going on? Obviously, they've struggled with some corruption in the past. They've struggled with some, um, you know, some issues. You know, we've got our corruption here in the U.S. too. Um, but what, uh, what, do you, what are some of the positive signs? What are some of the optimistic reasons you like India? Yeah, well, and just to follow, I mean, you, you, you bring a totally great point to that. So I, I agree with, with what you're saying. And you don't want to be, uh, who is it? Uh, Norio Rubini, isn't he? Isn't he the Doctor Doom guy? We're, we're definitely not. We're definitely not him. But uh, so so point taken and agreed with with your previous statement. India is a very unique own beast, uh, and well, we're vetting a company now there that is basically it's an employee benefits and insurance company for basically housemaids or kind of state like housework help, right? So it turns out India is so big and that this is a lot of folks, even middle class people that have like this kind of housework help, that there are 50 million houseworkers in India, 50 million, more than the entire state of California and their only job is to be like house help, right? So market size with India is just a whole nother level than what we can, it's like China level, right? They've got favorable demographics, China doesn't. Uh, They have been, they were 20 years behind China opening up. Uh, They are in the, they they play a very interesting game of, of, of peace and neutrality, except when it comes to Pakistan, but they don't get themselves involved with Ukraine, they trade with everybody. They don't like to pick sides, yet we need them in our Western orbit to counter China, and they hate China. So you're never, you're not going to see a lot of Chinese investors coming into India anytime soon. And I'm sure there are. I know we have some VC partners over there, and it's it's far away. Like we're we're very cautious when we uh, look at that market. It's it's very unique, much more than like you know Brazil or Mexico is much more aligned to a U.S. in terms of culture, you know, things like language, right? Uh, so. But it's just a matter of time, right? Like before India becomes, it will be the world, it will be the, the largest co- country by GDP, right? It will have to be because with China losing 600 million people due to demographics in the next 50 to 100 years, due to one child policy, uh, their population is going to collapse. Uh, same case with Russia, why they're pulling the stunt right now. Um, Italy's got a problem. So point is, great demographics so much room to come up to like close to parity with the rest of the world and they're also beneficiary of of the 
you saw, I don't know if you saw that iPhone producing their iPhone 14s, is it, or whatever generation they're on now in India, right? Whereas before they were producing more of the, only the lower end phones or the older phones. Then Apple said, no, we can't have this China risk, so we're going to build our latest and greatest phone in India. And it was a big uh, moment because it showed that a company like Apple was willing to risk what it had built with China and their, their current setup for a less proven market for their latest and greatest tech. Um, so, yeah, we haven't done one in India yet. Done one in Pakistan, like I said. We'd be very cautious. Um, I'm not spending a lot of time hunting there, but we get a lot of inbound deal flow there. Um, even some of my friends here that are Indian, that are Indian Americans that, uh, you know, then go back and start companies over there, or, for instance. So if we can be helpful, uh, fantastic. We can get in on a deal early and it, it makes it makes sense for us. We love to do it. Uh, I'm not going to be buying any property in, anytime soon there. I would definitely like to do that in Brazil first, but also a much shorter flight so uh, so grant what what happens to china long run right because they're not going to go down without a fight there's, there's no way um it's going to end in some it, it's got to right they're, they've got a big military obviously z has shown some ag aggression over the years but is that aggression is some of what they're trying to do is this to cover up some of the other issues that might not be public, right? Because a lot of the stuff that they put out is not overly accurate. Even the GDP numbers, we all know that those have been faked before. So is there something brewing underneath the scenes in your view in China as much as you can tell? Um, do you think the real estate crisis is, obviously that's something that's been talked about in the US even, right, is the commercial real estate problem. Um, What's going on in China? You think there's something brewing underneath the scenes um, economically that we just don't know about yet, and they're just trying to kind of stomp their feet a little bit to distract, or, or what, what ultimately comes of China? Well, I don't know if you've ever listened to Peter Zion on this. Uh, he's got some interesting takes. He, he thinks the whole country's just going to collapse, right? And he's, but he also works at the Department of Defense. He's an American guy. So I take a more middle-of-the-road approach. Mm. I believe they'll, they'll, they'll take Taiwan and if you want to hold me to it on this just for fun's sake because if I'm wrong I'll be very happy if it doesn't happen so I'd love to be wrong on this one but I think they'll take it probably October of would be 24 right before the election there's two times they can invade Taiwan it's in October and April due to the currents uh, being too stormy uh, in the other parts of the year so when that happens, we lose 90% of the chips that's all in Taiwan. That's why it was strategically built that way, so that, that it would never get taken over. So I think, I think they're going to take it. And I, I don't even know if we're going to – I don't even know how much of a fight we'd put up, to be honest with you. Uh, we'll see. I, I sure as hell hope we don't get into a big, big war over there. Um, so we'll see. But the, the, the problem they have is this demographic issue, which, like I alluded to, with one child policy and like, I think the ratio of, there's like a shortage of men. So there's like the ratio of, it's like almost like four to three or like six to five. Like there, there's an odd shape of males to females. And then there's just no supporting population to, to take care of the older generations. And so Zihan does say that regardless of 
war famine that China's headed for a 600 million, that they already lost in population over the coming, I don't know what do you say, by 2100, let's say, I, I, he has a date there. But they already, we already know they overcounted their population by about 100 million people. But it's so top heavy, or at the top with, with their older generations, there just is not enough young people to keep it, to keep it, to keep it going. So I think to your point, that could be why they're starting this fight now because now's their only time they can do it. If it's 20 years from now, they won't, they won't have the demographic structure to keep up. And so if they're gonna do it, now's the time. And what does that do then for global trade and the oceans and you know, we've, we're seeing them build military bases. So, you know, even if they lose 600 million people, they've still got quite a bit more than we have. So, and they're really good at, uh, it's just a different value system, right? They, they don't see it as stealing per se, maybe, it's from my time over there anyway. And, you know, I'm not an expert on East Asian culture or Chinese culture by any means, but it's community-based. So like, I mean, I even noticed in the universities where I went to schools and there's lots of, lots of people from China. It's like, people are just like sharing notes, sharing homeworks, sharing test answers, like, it's okay. It's, we're all one community. We all work in harmony together. And so as long as it's for the greater good, great. We have a more individualistic society, right? So I think that's where the real clash comes into is from a value system like they just have a totally different value system than we have. That comes down to things like individual rights, whether whether you're a pro-gun or pro, you know, or you're on the LGBTQ side. like. Either one of those are individual rights that we as Americans cherish, that you have the right to be able to do some things. There it's the rights for the state. It's for the community. And there's a lot of pros to having that and they're able to like whip up this innovation so quickly because of that. Whereas here we'd have IP and it'd be like, no, I built this, like you can't touch it. Not the case there. So uh, I don't think China's dead in the water. like. Peter Zion says, but their, their relative position will start to come down. As others rise, like India, and as the demographics prove themselves out, but in that process, yeah, they're gonna be quite feisty, and I don't think they're scared to, to take us on. Well, it's so. too bad because if we had a, you know, we're in this environment where we actually could be opportunistic with China right now, right? Like, we could really not, militarily necessarily go on the offensive but you could if you had the if you had the wherewithal to do it in the white house let's just leave it at that um this is a fantastic opportunity to kind of take advantage of the situation and be the dominant country like we've done in the past right um but it's more of the jimmy carter style mentality where it's not u.s is number one it's not um, hey, we're the biggest and the best, and it's kind of like we're going to take a back seat. So I agree. I, I think if China does something with Taiwan, the U.S. may just do nothing, which I think would be kind of tragic. You know, I think it would be not not that we want to get into a war. I agree with you. But at the same time, from a chip standpoint, from a tech standpoint, from a pro-democracy standpoint, it's not great if they invade. Yeah. Well, and then we're in a two-front war because we're already sending tanks to Ukraine and spent 100 billion there. So we want to fight 
Russians and the Chinese at the same time? Unlikely under this administration. Yeah, I agree. Well, uh, Grant, awesome conversation. Thank you so much for being here. Ladies and gentlemen, again, this is why you have to be on these shows each and every week. We try to give you the clarity and confidence. We try to give you a little bit of insight, what's going on. We try to bring you people like Grant, entrepreneurs who are on the ground floor level, who really know what's going on. And that's why you have to get these stories. This is what we hold on to when we're going through these volatile times in the market is we get stories of businesses creating products, innovating, growing their net income. And as that goes on over time, we watch our net worth go up with company profits. That's it. That's simply the, the valuation of the stock market. That's how wealth is created. And uh, Grant, thank you so much for being on with us. Again, episode 111 of the show. We'll see you next week for episode 112.